The Legacy of John Williams Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams Welcome, this is Maurizio Caschetto of The Legacy of John Williams. Here with me today, my friend and collaborator, Tim Burden. Hello, Tim. Maurizio, hello. How are you? Very good, thank you. So nice to have you back. And as we teased in our latest episode with the Space Camp preview, uh, today we are happy to have once again soundtrack producer Mike Medicino to discuss the latest John Williams releases that have been recently announced so, hello, Mike. Nice to have you back on the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Thanks. Hi, Maurizio, and hi, hello, Tim. Mike. And it's uh, great to be back, but boy, you guys have me on a lot. <laughs> <laughs> withdrawal, yes, as withdrawal. Yes, actually, we are getting very spoiled by having you so many times and so frequently, but it's always a great pleasure, uh, of course. But actually, it was you that teased at the end of our Superman in Concert talk last month that John Williams fans could expect a round of new releases and reissues this year. And it seems like the flood is starting to come out of the gates, <laughs> like they say. Uh, because recently we had not just one, but two new John Williams expanded reissues. And really, they cannot be two more different and diverse scores. That's true, and yeah, yes, those are the first two, and uh, and yes, there will be more, provided I don't do so many damn podcasts. <laughs> okay, okay. So let's try for once to to keep this conversation very tight, very compact, and let's stay on the point. I'll do my best to to keep this very much on track. Um, so the first release that we are talking about today came courtesy of Intrada and it's the expanded two-studio release of Space Camp, while the second one is more unexpected probably, but very welcome the same, and it's the deluxe edition of Presumed Innocent, just announced by Varez Sarabant. These are very too specific, and I would say also unique, items in John Williams' filmography, as they come from a moment in his career where the big franchises that defined much of his output during that era were a closed chapter, up until that point at least. So it was an era where, as you noted when we talked about The River a couple of years ago, it wasn't that rare or unexpected to see John Williams giving his own talents to films that were not directed by Steven Spielberg or were in Star Wars or Indiana Jones or other big Hollywood franchises. So, Mike, in this regard, I'm very interested to hear your take on Space Camp and how it sits in the Williams Canaan after you revisited the score for this truly impressive remastered and expanded edition, which really sounds wonderful. Um, well, thank you. Um, there are a lot of avenues we could hop on to cover that subject, and I'm not quite sure which one would be the first or the best one to start with. Certainly felt like there was a kind of a capper when he finished the Star Wars trilogy, 
But at the same time, we already knew by then that he had taken over the Boston Pops. Then he became very, very visible in the United States, not only through the, the Evening at Pops concerts, but then wrote the music for the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, the NBC News music, and then continued his association with Steven Spielberg with amazing stories. So suddenly you were hearing John Williams' music on television a lot. Then we had the second Indiana Jones in 1984, and we really didn't know when there was going to be another at that point. And because Steven Spielberg's career track kind of changed and he started doing more serious films, and the first one out the gate was one that John did not score, which was The Color Purple, which was a project that came to him with Quincy Jones sort of attached to it. And being a yes. brilliant musician, he was obviously the right composer to kind of lead what ended up being a very wide, eclectic uh, group of people coming together to create the score on the whole. You know, the, really the news at the time was that uh, Spielberg was going to do a live-action version of Peter Pan. And that was even sort of announced in a Paramount Pictures uh, promotional distribution reel in 1985, saying that it was coming the next year. And so that was really what we were expecting would be his big 1986 project. Um, it was developed quite a bit, but uh, then he pulled the plug on it. And a few things, I think, happened related to that, which have been discussed. He became a father, and he got married, and he was being very much encouraged by Sidney Scheinberg and Steve Ross, the executives from Universal and Warner Brothers, respectively, where Amblin was making a lot of movies for both studios, to kind of stretch his talent and, and dig deeper into the subject matter. And then along came Empire of the Sun. Um, and I know it was actually during the production of that movie where he just made the decision, I'm not doing Peter Pan. That actually left, in the middle part of that, around um, late 85, um, sort of a hole in John Williams' schedule because he thought he was going to be working on Peter Pan, which was on the track to be a musical, so that would be obviously a big, big commitment. So at the same time, um, his very close friend, Lionel Newman, running the music department of 20th Century Fox, retired, stayed on to finish whatever projects were going, but there was a big retirement party. He had given John his office at the 20th Century Fox lot in 1964, I think it was, so 20 years he'd been there. Amblin was being built, and then John's office moved there, and he's still there. You know, this when Peter Pan got canceled, Lionel Newman just happened to spot this project that 20th Century Fox was going to distribute, and gave it to John and said, how about this? And, and that was Space Camp. And so he took it, but it was really actually a project that really John liked when he saw it and liked the people involved and was able to bring something to it, I think. That's sort of where it sits in the chronology of his work in terms of the output as a composer. I think it's kind of like uh, the end of uh, a particular period. I think it really is... You might say something like The Witches of Eastwick is maybe a line of demarcation, but I think Space Camp is kind of like the last of sort of the familiar heroic sounds that we can maybe trace back to Star Wars, but also partially, I think, the disaster scores, because there is that element of the Space Camp story. It seems like right around 87, right around the time that Spielberg was digging a little bit deeper with Empire of the Sun, John Williams started digging a little deeper also. 
so I think Space Camp, at least to me, seems to mark kind of an end of uh, a capper of a particular um, era in the um, in the sort of the canon, if you will, of, of John Williams' scores. You painted a great picture there, actually, Mike. That, that really is a fantastic window into that whole era. And, you know, with Space Camp, it, over here in UK, in Ireland, it was only a, like a straight-to-video thing. Um, was it theatrical over there in America or in Italy at all? Uh, it certainly was a, a big deal here. Of course, we have to mention the one big event that cast a shadow over the whole thing was the accident with the Space Shuttle Challenger in mm -hmm. January of 1986, so the movie was already um, in post-production, and in fact, they were supposed to actually photograph Challenger's landing for and to use in the end of the movie, but of course oh, wow. it exploded on launch, and so they therefore, the final shot of the movie is, I think, Columbia landing, um, piece of stock footage. So that really kind of left the movie in a very bad situation, especially in trying to figure out how to market it. Uh, we might remember at the end of that year when Star Trek IV came out, that movie was dedicated to the crew of the Challenger. So that was very, very big news that whole year. Um, and there was really sort of nothing that could be done about it other than just put the movie out and not say a word about it and just kind of, you know, let it go however it was going to go. But I can remember at that time being just start, starting university, there were opportunities to go to lots of screenings and things. It was a very big summer for movies that were trying to be big hits, and not and not just genre, but other stuff too, like the Karate, Karate Kid movie and uh, Top Gun, which ended up being the big movie that year. But uh, there were a lot of screenings I remember going to, and most of them were advanced. So, I mean, basically, if it was any kind of genre movie or any big thing like that, there was an advanced screening to go to, whether it was Aliens or... Flight of the Navigator or um, the Manhattan Project, you know, so, so all of that, you know, came out that summer. So I remember seeing Space Camp at an early preview. The audience went crazy for it. They loved it. But then it opened a couple of weeks later and it, and it just, you know, did nothing. You, you know, I think people weren't really just ready to deal with something that seemed a little bit, you know, it was a little whimsical and, and, and you know, only half serious in light of 
the tragic accident that happened. So that was a sort of a defining moment of the 80s was watching that launch, as many of us did look at that launch and then just to see what we saw right there on live television. Mm -hmm. As you also remark in your insightful uh, liner notes that accompanies the, the, this new release, um, I mean, the film itself contains nods and we can say also tributes to the Spielberg slash Amblin style of the era. And it seems also that Williams went in a kind of Spielberg-like modality for, for this movie. Uh, yet, I think that it doesn't sound pretty much like anything of his Spielberg scores that he did before then, but with the exception, perhaps, of, as you already mentioned fleetingly, uh, Amazing Stories, and specifically the Mission episode, which was written around the same time, I think. Well, the um, yeah, as we mentioned, we mentioned that how visible he was to those of us in the United States at that time. We were hearing John Williams' music all the time, every night on the news and the Olympics, and he went back to television for the first time since the '60s, and so we were hearing a TV series with his theme, and then he scored those two episodes that Steven Spielberg directed. But since the river we didn't get any releases of any music. And for the first summer of 85, even though there were some very durable movies that came out in 85 that we still talk about today, including the one on Tim's t-shirt, Back <laughs> to the Future, um, you know, there was no John Williams score. And it felt bizarre to me. It just felt bizarre. There was a reissue of E.T. that really didn't do too well, actually. Um, but it was just a, uh, it, there was, you were going through withdrawal. And then the amazing stories came on the air, and I love the score to the mission. I was shocked by it. I, I mean, I really couldn't believe that you were watching a one-hour television episode with a score like that, and I wanted it immediately. And it was many, many years till we could get it. I had pieces of it a little bit later, before, way before the Entrada release of it. Um, I had three or four cues of it, but, you know, so there was nowhere to go. But you get the album where his Olympic theme, you know, was on it, and, and, that, and that was it. Even the NBC News Music didn't have a release or anything. So when 1986 came along, and in the middle of all of um, these big movies trying to get some of the summer box office, there's Space Camp, finally with a John Williams score. It was, you know, just like the oasis in the desert. <laughs> and what a score. So it was right in line with everything that he was doing at that time. Uh, he called it sort of a very direct approach. And it is. It's just like, it's just John Williams being John Williams. He was not trying to find another voice or, or a special voice. And it did need to, to evoke a sort a particular culture or, 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 or locality or anything like that. It could just be sort of a pure action adventure with some uh, drama and some suspense, just John Williams doing what he does. And so it was, 
extremely refreshing because as, as interesting as a lot of those other movies that summer were to go see, uh, and I've never even been the biggest fan of Aliens, which was not anywhere near the top box office that people think it was. It was basically Top Gun and Karate Kid Part 2, you know, with the two big ones that year. Yeah, with big songs. Space Camp was, you know, the music certainly drew, drew me to it. I, I, it. It wouldn't have been the same movie without that score. It just carried it, I, I think. Totally. It really elevated it big time. myself were commenting on uh, during our Space Camp preview episode last week, the uplifting, joyous musical style that John applied to this film and that was so typical of that mid to late 1980s era uh, is also present in pieces like uh, the Olympic Fanfare and Amazing Stories and the Liberty Fanfare, uh, the NBC News. I mean, all the some of the pieces that also you were mentioning a moment ago. All these are characterized with lots of major key melodies in Lydian mode, uh, with bright orchestration, lots of flourishes. Everything sounds so optimistic. And this is came to be really a quintessential uh, Williams sound, we, can, we could say. So in this regard, in the case of Space Camp, do you think here he was trying to channel something deep and profound when he was using that modality. I mean, like he was trying to create a sort of John Williams Americana sound. Maybe. I think that with the shuttle program itself, it was a very, very big deal. It was a, it was a real source of American pride at that time. You can go back and watch the original IMAX movie about Columbia, and then you can go back and uh, some of us remember when the, the test shuttles were done and they were piggybacked on 747s that was um, a prominent thing in Moonraker. That's what Moonraker was, was the piggyback shuttle getting stolen, right? And the first test one rolled out was in 1976, the Enterprise, with the crew of Star Trek, the cast of Star Trek minus William Shatner, there for, with Gene Roddenberry, for the rollout. So that was a very big source of American pride. And 
the Challenger accident was just a big blow to the pit of the stomach. It was very demoralizing. And I think maybe John wanted to bring some optimism and some hope back through the music that we, in our collective efforts to explore space, you know, would not be discouraged by that as tragic as it was. It, uh, you know, we have to keep moving forward. And I think his music carries that sort of quality to it in a, in a way to, to bring the ending of it to the sort of grand level that E.T. also got to, to this idea that, you know, you've survived this ordeal and now you have to grow up and it's okay, you know, just find the strength and just keep carrying on. There's that component to the music that I think, and there's some Jeopardy music and suspense music, but it also has a different character than, say, the disaster scores of the early 70s had, which were very, very bleak and, and hopeless sounding. He's able to build a sense of excitement and adventure, always staying in that mode, but never being repetitive. And that, that's, that's an achievement, right. I guess. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that, yeah. And I think the, the fugue is, is so wonderful to hear as well, you know, and that kind of motive in, in, in music was, was rare for that time, wasn't it? You know, hearing, hearing a fugue like that, um, especially in the 80s. Like, you know, it, it sounds like a major mode version of the Jaws fugue <laughs> or counterpoint. Well, I suppose I know that that's true. <laughs> But guys, we, we we haven't we haven't mentioned the delightfully cheese tastic training montage yet. I mean, that is oh yeah, definitely worth mentioning. I mean, that's well, that's kind of, come on now. This was also the MTV era, yeah. Yes. So um, and and it was about kids. So you know, and you want to get kids in the audience. So I mean, it was the, it was the right way to go, I think, for that. And uh, with the backbeat, yes, um, which he'd used before and 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 after. So. Yeah, I mean the the river certainly you know a couple of years before, and there's even a bit of a kind of a follow me vibe to it as well. It, yeah, I mean look, he, he was always good, and it still is uh, good at that kind of upbeat in the moment. But cue. but you know many many John Williams fans always you know signaled this cue as the oh come on John Williams cannot do pop cannot do you know contemporary stuff, but. You know, what I like, I really like about this piece is the fact that you hear it and it, and you can really notice that it's really a written piece of music. He didn't just, you know, throw out a melody 
and, and you know a rhythm accompaniment and that's it you know he really crafted right it wasn't just something laid, laid in over the scene but yes. uh, I mean the yeah. same it, it, it sort of I, I kind of also equate it to the preparing the trap from home alone uh, a little bit because mm-hmm. that uses a backbeat as well mm. but is also a very well constructed piece of music that specifically goes with the, the edits that you're seeing Yes, but but yes. I think what it what it actually does, I mean, it, it's wrong to deride it because I think you kind of needed that because it would offset the kind of music that's going to come later, starting when they drive up to the shuttle and, and do the engine test that the the silly little NASA robot <laughs> mix <laughs> forces them to launch. Yes, um, that's that that that's Max. if you're already that's if you're already on board with this idea of bringing students onto a shuttle for a long, for a <laughs> test. So, um, but uh, but yeah, I think to prepare you for that, he couldn't do that kind of music earlier. You needed to have something very more contemporary and grounded and earthbound, something that would be reflective of the kind of music that the uh, kids would be playing on their Sony Walkman headphones at that time. Yes. And also the the other things that I love is the fact that you can, of course, maybe the drum were programmed like in, back in the day, like it was a synth programming of the drum, like a kind of a primitive way of programming drums. But actually, if you hear the bass playing, it's the great Neil Steubenhaus, which is one of the greatest studio basses. Oh, it's like slap bass. It is a bit yes, of slap bass. And, and it's totally. just a yeah, I love it. playing. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> brings us to the soundtrack album of 1986 because there's also at least for me there was a story about that because one of the problems we had was that at that time we were getting some movies coming out with terrific scores and then we weren't getting any of the music so including back to the future again which had a soundtrack album that was all songs and then two cuts of score, one of which was the end credits. The Goonies, all songs with just the end credits. Gremlins came out as, a, as an album and only one side was score and the other were songs. So there was this very alarming pattern at the time with the soundtrack albums. And so since we'd gone through all of 1985 with no John Williams albums at all, when 86 came along and we started seeing more of these uh, type of releases, and then you had Top Gun, which obviously was basically like a big MTV music video with with jet airplanes and very popular songs that kind of drove the soundtrack. Uh, You know, so the question was, what was this soundtrack going to be? Because I remember getting the press kit at the conventions that were going on in New York at the time, the Star Star Trek and science fiction conventions. And in there were all the song credits 
quite a few of them by John's son, Joseph Williams. And the worry was that uh, we would get another song album or something with just one cut of John Williams or half, half like Gremlins, only one side of it. So there are also these cassette tapes that RCA Victor released as promos with just the track Space Camp, which you guys played, um, the end credits music. And that was my first uh, um, taste of what the score was going to be like. I had that before Memorial Day on a, a cassette of that. Okay. And I just, was, I, I just was thrilled with it. Absolutely thrilled with it. Um, but then when the album finally came out, what a relief it was to see that the entire thing was the John Williams score. And a pretty generous runtime as well, because it was like yeah. 48, 49 minutes. 49 know. minutes, yeah. So, I mean, I, I coveted that thing because I loved it. That was like the lifeline, you know, in this um, period of time where there wasn't any other John Williams to buy. That was the lifeline, was that album. As you, Tim, were mentioning during this our our preview episode last week, you mentioned about how the actual compact disc release was, was a sought-after item because it was just released in Japan, I think, and it was very highly expensive on the secondary market yes. of the soundtrack collectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so basically, if you haven't got a hold of the LP back in the day, it was right up until Intrada put out the first uh, reissue of the original soundtrack album on CD in 2010-2011 and don't remember specifically what year it was but I think it was already more than 10 years ago uh, so that was the very first occasion where the soundtrack album was finally yeah, was again available to a wider audience since 1986 yeah yeah and I mean not only was the new movie uh, you know didn't have any as much traction because it really didn't do well. But also the, the rights were a little bit weird because it was actually produced by a feature division of ABC, Television Network, 
and distributed through 20th Century Fox in the US. And then there were various other rights for different territories and whatever to get it on home video around the world. And it was kind of hard to come by even as a movie for a while. Um, although I did see it once as, a, in, as an in-flight movie, which I thought was oh. a strange choice because <laughs> okay. we were yeah, watching the unusual. ending of the movie as we were descending and just hoping, you know, <laughs> it wasn't going to be any fuselage, you know, burning up. But uh, yeah, so th- it was hard to find. And uh, even, you know, to actually expand it, that's what kept it from being expanded for all these years, even though there really wasn't that much to expand to it because you had technically ABC owning that unreleased music and Sony Music having the album, which was maybe 49 minutes. So it's like to actually make a deal where ABC, which is part of the Walt Disney Company, was going to let six or seven minutes of music that they owned be added to a Sony album. You know, that's why it was easier to just license the LP and put it out. And Wayne Trotter did that, I think, twice. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they uh, did. And, and actually, these things can be very complicated, actually, to pull off. And, and and maybe the other thing that is very specific to this new release is the fact that you were able to unearth the original three-track film mixes by Armin Steiner, while instead, you know, the, the soundtrack album was uh, remixed by Len Engel. Is that correct? It is. And uh, it's interesting that the combination of Len Engel, Lionel Newman, and John Williams in 1986 right at the time Lionel left the studio and retired, those that Troika was a Lost in Space reunion. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they had come, literally come full circle yes. that, of getting lost in space. In every sense of the word, yes. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, actually, actually, at the time in Toronto did their first release, we did find um, a quarter-inch tape, I think, with sort of one take of every cue, but it really didn't sound good. And we made some attempt back then, I think, to add some bonus tracks to the end of it, but it actually really didn't sound good. So later on, when there was better technology, I thought we might try again. And as we were approaching the point, we already knew that the Disney acquisition was going to happen. One of the things I did was go over to 20th Century Fox, and we went through with Ron Fuglesby, who also happened to retire right at the same time, and it was right after the passing of Nick Redman. So we went through a lot of the vaults there, and particularly the Len Engel collection, to pull out anything that was not Walt Disney property. Oddly enough, Space Camp technically is, because it was produced by ABC. Um, but at that time, Ron found the three-track, and I said, oh, he's, but, you know, things were like, it's like sunken treasure, you know, it could be on the floor of the ocean, but then you have to wait for a storm to pass through, and it kicks things up, and suddenly things are there that weren't there before. So we found it. It was among the material that was transferred for me prior to Disney actually taking over everything physically, so that I would have it. Um, and, and there it sat for quite a while, just waiting for Entrada to make this deal and this crazy deal between Sony Music and ABC to, um, to, to make this finally happen. Yeah, so I had the three-track, and here's the thing. It's a fabulous mix by Armin Steiner, and I really didn't think it was too much different from the album, so much so that I really thought that uh, what is essentially disc one um, of this release was fine for me. It was the full score, and it has bonus tracks, which were the album edits, so that you could create the album if you wanted to. Um, and, I, and I was satisfied with that, but Doug Fake wanted to make it a two-disc set and include the album from the album master, and I think for two reasons. The very first version that they put out 
was a finished master handed to them by Sony Music. It was already EQ'd and mastered, and there was nothing they could do about it. The second time around, I think um, they got a raw transfer, but it had flaws and edits and things in it and problems in it that uh, were not addressed, and he wanted them addressed maybe a little bit better. So I was happy enough that they did actually a fresh, high-resolution layoff of the quarter-inch album master so that we could actually get. Heathbiss felt that the Len Angle mixes had validity and that we should uh, keep them. I think the difference is, you know, rather esoteric, but I guess but I guess they're nice to have. But I really do like the sound of the Armin Steiner 3 track. So I was happy to I was happy to do it that way and it's just at least it's like the last word and especially when you're talking about an album that spent so many years being scarce and unavailable. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably right. people who yeah. feel like they're unnecessarily buying it again, but uh, at least it's the last word on it. I really, you know, there's nothing more to do with it. You, you mentioned Armin Steiner's, you know, the mix. The sound is so lovely and bright, isn't it? There's a lovely brightness to it, and it's one of these um, recordings that I think the phrase you would use, Mike, is "lightning in a bottle." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, that was a you know well-oiled machine, and John did not work much at Fox after that. Um, Home Alone, and then there were a few things from Hook done there. But then he shifted over to uh, Sony and never came back to the 20th Century Fox stage except for The Book Thief. Mm-hmm. Basically, I think, I think I've got that right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but, but, you know, um, there was that period of time where when he was done with the Star Wars trilogy and with the, um, the Eric Tomlinson era in the UK, he kind of bounced around to different mixers. There was Bruce Botnick who did a couple and then uh, Armin and Danny Wallen through a lot of the 80s until he finally found uh, Sean, and I think Empire of the Sun was his first. Yes. 
you know, once they once you once they got past Home Alone and started on Hook, um, with the exception of a couple of more things done in the UK, it, it was Sean. So, but but I think that um, you know it reflects sort of that well-oiled machine at 20th Century Fox that goes back for decades, really, of what uh, what they captured on the on the three track. Um, and Lens remix is perfectly good. Let's not forget Armin did the digital remix of Empire of the Sun, which was Sean's recording. Mm. So um, there is, it's, it's, it's subtle differences, but sometimes there's just the feeling, perhaps even more in that era than now, because the, the theaters themselves, the cinema houses, were a little more reverberant then. It's before they started making them very acoustically perfect, and THX came in and everything was dry. Um, you used to really rely on the spaciousness of the room to create the sound and the resonance and, and sort of the, the reverb to a degree. The room itself did it. So film mixes were done with that in mind and album mixes were done with sitting at home or in the case of being 1986, your Walkman and your boombox. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, arriving at Didylus, this is, the, this is the, the cue which Rich and I were... Well, kind of well, I think every every John Williams fan was was looking forward to hearing you know for the first time. And Mike, I mean, did you hear? Was it was that cue? Because I mean, it's very brief in the film mm-hmm. here on the album. It's lovely and expanded. So, what was is it the first time you heard heard it? Whenever you heard, you know, the the masters. No, it was on that quarter inch tape that I mentioned that I got back in twenty ten. Oh, okay, all right. Um, and I had it since then, but again, that was not great quality, and the uh, analog edits were pretty bad, and I didn't have. We didn't have the tools quite yet to smooth them over as much um, as we can now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was one of those things where um, when it would play on cable television, I would try to get turn, turn it in when that scene was coming up so I could hear it. Yes. And, um, you know, and I think I maybe even did like a little cassette layoff when I had the VHS tape or something, just so I'd have a little snippet of that music. So it clearly was the one little standout. There's other little quiet suspense cues and other yeah, it's that kind repetitive of... things that were not on the original album. But that's yeah. sort of one little standout uh, mm-hmm. fanfare that um, it was very obvious that uh, if you liked John Williams' music, you wanted that. There's another thing we didn't mention here, which I'd like to, because it's actually very important to me. Um, the other thing that happened in the summer of 1986 was the centennial of the Statue of Liberty in New mm. York City. Yes, Liberty Funfair. Which was a very, very big deal. That And that was actually his concert that he gave at Liberty State Park. That's the first time I saw him live. Wow. Oh, was for okay, the 4th wow. was for the 4th nice of July. Memory. It was an extremely festive time um, in New York City with all the boats in the harbor and everything and... Uh, you know, but maybe they went a little bit overboard because there was something like 40 boats that had damage from burning embers and like 200 people in the hospital for smoke inhalation. That's how many fireworks they set off. But it was like this massive uh, thing to go to Liberty State Park and to actually see him. And they had this big sort of military procession of raising the flags to the Liberty Fanfare. So that was, the, the, it was a turning point for me because this was now moved things into a different level. Now I'm actually seeing see him there with the Boston Pops Esplanade conducting and uh, that that was going to be sort of um, part of the future was um, him as a conductor and accessible Mm -hmm. rather than just someone whose albums you buy. Um, And that really just put him into the spotlight uh, right along with the Olympics, which he then returned to in 88. So all through that era, it was a magical time. Um, 
we look back now at it, especially with what's going on in the news with Russia, and I think back then about how we were all sort of living under this threat of nuclear war back then. Mm -hmm. Ideologically, I very strongly disagree with uh, what Mr. Reagan was doing, as well as uh, his little partner in crime, uh, Mrs. Thatcher, at the time. And I was personally affected, my family was personally affected by some of his economic policies, but he really brought back an optimism to America and made you feel good about it and about the future. And he loved those kind of big events of, um, you know, opening the Olympics in Los Angeles or the Statue of Liberty. He loved those kind of big pomp and circumstance type things, being a Hollywood actor anyway. So you look back um, and through that sort of haze of youth, you realize it was a very happy time. Um, and it was sort of before life got really too busy and... Um, uh, where where these special things would happen, and you'd feel you really would feel like they're special, and you didn't go to big events and feel like you wanted to just stand there and record it with your phone rather than experiencing it and just yes. taking it all in. Um, you know, even though you had to make sure you had enough tokens for the subway and enough change for payphones and, yeah. uh, and you know, and, and yeah, battery batteries in your batteries in your Walkman and you know, and, and all that, but. Uh, you know, it was a very happy, innocent time, and to me, you know, John's music to me was part of that. It really, was. that's I think, you know, in the grander picture, Space Camp is kind of like a lifeline for me and all that. I just I just think about when I think the '80s, you know, I I kind of go to that score. I know this is a kind of a worn out uh, phrase, but uh, actually we, we used this one also when we did the 90th birthday video montage uh, last February. And John's music is really the soundtrack of our lives also for these reasons. And I use this term, you know, I know that, this, as I said, it's a kind of a worn out uh, phrase in this day and age, but I think in the case of John it's really true. And, and it really accompanied our lives, even, you know, in different phases in our lives, respective lives. 
uh, and it's always been there and always accompanying and scoring we could say pivotal moments of our growing up and then becoming adults and being out in the world but for me it's really literal because i think this era is also when the liberation happened for me from music being something that you only played at home mm. so even it literally was the soundtrack because you could put them on the headphones and go out so i'd be walking the streets of manhattan with the headphones and i'd be listening to space camp or Temple of Doom or E.T. or whatever, you know, it literally was scoring what you're seeing. And that never was mm. the case before. So particularly the mid 80s, when we really, this really saw every, everything started to get solidified, you know, people, music videos and your VHS collection and, and your Walkman and your boombox and all these things, it, it became solidified. You sort of had a handle on what your music was and where it was going to accompany you. So it really was a literal thing becoming the soundtrack to your mm -hmm. life. To me, it was. I'm probably the only person walking around the island of Manhattan or in a subway listening to John Williams. But maybe <laughs> not. You know, you just don't know. Everyone, you were in your private little musical world starting in this period. So, and I played that to death. And the fact that I could take the LP and make a cassette recording and put the music in chronological order, that was the beginning <laughs> of what I'm still doing the same thing now, except with, you know, fancier toys and they pay me to do it. But um, <laughs> but it's really the same thing, and it um, is. It is. You know. So uh, yeah, it's not. It's a cliche, but it actually is literal. of John Williams' music being the soundtrack of our lives, uh, I think is a nice segue to the second release that we are going to talk about today, which is Presumed Innocent, coming in a deluxe edition uh, from Varese Saraband. Even more than Space Camp, this was a surprising project for John Williams. Uh, at least it was certainly for me. Uh, because I do remember distinctly back in the day being surprised to see his name attached to a movie that was very, very far from the childhood fantasy that I was usually associated his music to. This was certainly a high-profile city picture with a big movie star, so perhaps we can say that it wasn't that unlikely for him to be asked to score uh, what was a prestige movie uh, like Presumed Innocent. Uh, which also went on to become one of the major box office hits of the year. But it was still surprising, I think, for, for most of the audience because uh, he was just off uh, Indiana Jones. Uh, he just did Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which marked the end of the 1980s. And we can say also perhaps the end of a certain kind of a lighthearted symphonic style applied to the movies. Anyway, I think that perhaps in retrospect we can say that something like Presumed Innocent wouldn't be so strange to see uh, in his filmography in the 1970s, for example. But now, in 1990, was certainly something of a change for his career. Well, yeah, Presumed Innocent, I think you, you alluded to you know, doing the Indiana Jones, the third one which even when that came along, it's felt like a long gap of time, five years, even though the gaps got longer. But 
But that was came at an interesting time because we really didn't know. We, there was, you know, the idea of more Star Wars movies was talked about, but that's all it was. In fact, Star Wars reached a sort of low point in 1991 where not too many people really cared about it. It's hard to imagine now. But it had to sort of have a resurgence. And I remember Lucasfilm was actually thinking that the reissues in 1997 weren't going to do very well. Mm-hmm. So I remember that period of time. And, and, and it really, really seemed that that Indiana Jones was the last one. Everything was set up to make it the last one. They literally rode off into the sunset. Steven Spielberg's comments was that that was it. We then got the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, which did not have John's music on it. had great Larry Rosenthal music. So it suddenly freed John up to do other films without having Star Wars or Indiana Jones, which were very big, time-consuming projects. That's what I think it, it meant to me. It's like, oh... He can kind of do what he wants now, and isn't that cool? Even though it sort of struck me as a, as a movie that seemed more like something Jerry Goldsmith would have done. But as it happened, um, 1990 had a Paul Verhoeven movie, a Fred Shepesey movie, and a Joe Dante movie. So uh, Jerry was very busy in 1990 with Gremlins 2 and Total Recall and um, Russia House. So it's interesting that you went to John. John was not ever dismissive of anything until he saw it it's if he responded to the movie and if he got on well with the director and in this case it was alan pakula they did get on very well um but i love this was the beginning of that era where now suddenly he was free to surprise you and suddenly there would be sabrina or sleepers you know so i love that i kind of miss that period now but I, I think, yeah, he, it was an opportunity to express himself in a little bit of a different way, explore this sort of new voice that he found a little bit in films like uh, The Accidental Tourist, which still was sort of part of the same kind of camp of people because you had uh, Lawrence yeah, Kasdan, Kasdan. Yes. and Witches of Eastwick. And so there were opportunities where he did do different things in there. But it felt obvious to me once we got to the 90s and Indiana Jones was over. At that moment, I don't think we necessarily would have been surprised if we never got more Star Wars. It was just talked about. We knew it was sort of an obligation because he'd numbered the movies 4, 5, and 6. It would come along at some point, but you know, you really never knew. It just was talked about. Not until the special editions came out in 97 did you really expect that, okay, it's going to be a thing now. So that early part of the 90s was... Um, the focus wasn't on that. It was just, uh, what's John Williams going to be doing next? And uh, and that just was a real nice breath of fresh air for him to do that kind of uh, film. And really the kind of film that you wouldn't even make now as a feature. You know, you really wouldn't. It would just be for one of the stre- streaming services. Yes. It would, exactly, like a TV movie. I mean, uh, what stands out from that era, you know, when we think about, you know, he worked with some of those directors like, like Alan J. Buckula and then Martin Ritt, some of these old guard Hollywood legends who who are still making films and I guess at the end of the day, uh, quite simply would have been maybe just pick up the phone and, and ask because everyone wanted John Williams at that, at that stage, you know. He did go through, I think, a period of time where the reviews for his work were not always favourable. And I think Space Camp you know, um, also received some of it, too much bombast, and I think he got it for um, Empire of the Sun as well. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, scathing, scathing. so when he did things like um, Always and Accidental Tourist, he demonstrated that he could really scale down and be very intimate and sensitive in, in the music, and Presumed Innocent is that. 
kind of um, score where I think just the overriding mood of it is that um, people have secrets. Yes. And if you're gonna, if you're trying to try to characterize that in music, he just did it. I think it, it's a score where we can really use the word masterclass in terms of dramatic scoring and especially how subtle and yet at the same time very powerful the accompaniment is. I mean, the music never uh, oversells what we are seeing, but quite the opposite. It lures the viewer into this kind of torbid story and almost ask to ourselves uh, to question what we are seeing. And I think this is really the type of assignment where a score can really make or break the movie if the right or wrong approach you use. I mean, it's you... you, you well, really yeah, because want... I think you don't, in a, in a Star Wars or even something like Space Camp, you don't have to really try to dig too much into the psychology. But in a movie like Presumed Innocent, really you do. That's the whole heart of it, is what's, what's making people tick. That's a very different thing for a composer to do, and Jerry's very good at that. But this was, but John had these big bombastic scores where he even did a movie where the main thing he was writing for nothing was um, making a tick other than instinct, and that was Jaws. So if he could write that, you know, the mindless eating machine. Now you have to write for characters who are complex and have things going on in their minds, and actors who are having to act through their facial expressions and their eyes. And, uh, and observing little things happening in daily, everyday life, and then finding just the way to punctuate that with music. That's, in a way, maybe a little more challenging. It's very easy to just sort of call up the John Philip Sousa band and have him blast away, you know, and, and call it a movie score. That maybe is a little easier than trying to find, oh, can I do this with a harp and a piano and, you know, and, and a little thing here and a little thing there. You know, or is that too much? Or is that too little? Will they get it? You know, uh, it's, it's one of those exercises at the gym that feels easy, but then you discover uh, two hours later that you're aching anyway, and that it actually was hard. Yes. Um, so th those are different types of muscles used in uh, composing. That and it was it was great to have him have an opportunity to do a movie like that. I think. Yeah. Yes, and I wonder if if the lessons of his friend Bernard Herrmann came to his mind. I guess. Probably sometimes because I think you know Bernard Herrmann was considered the master of this type of psychological approach to movie scoring because when he was uh, working with Hitchcock, especially of course, uh, he was really working in on that level. I mean, it's like uh, you know what you see is different to, to what you hear, so you have to make things in accord. And 
we as an audience are questioned about our perception. So this is a very fine line again. And I think that also the main theme speaks about that because it's about seduction and obsession, like uh, Jeff Bond say in his excellent liner notes that accompanies this release, um, and the, you know the piano motif that opens the score. But at the same time, we hear this wonderful, beautiful theme on French horn, where that speaks about uh, you know Harrison Ford's character's feelings of regret. And it's perhaps the first time that John Williams uses the French horn, not to depict nobility and heroism, but something sad and almost hopeless. Is that, is that true, Tim? You know, usually French horn is the, you know, <laughs> the instrument that speaks about the hero. Yeah, that, that's true. It can be. There's that nobility. But with um, the presumed innocent theme, there, there's this. It's, there's almost. There's no. There's no real closure to it, which is. Which is, of course, is very clever as well. Thinking psychologically, I mean, we you know we should say if no one's seen the film, you, you should definitely see the film. It, it, it is a good quality film from Warner Brothers, and I, I love how. I mean, there's a great twist, a devastating twist at the end. Um, and I remember being very surprised by it when I first saw it. But I, I think as well, it's it's really worth highlighting the way the film spotted because. At the very opening of the film, you know, you have the 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 shot of the jury. Uh, Gordon Willis shoots this film. It's worth praising Gordon Willis because there's some great photography. Genius. And just whenever Harrison Ford finishes his narration, there's this devastating silence before the piano kicks in. It's very very clever. I mean, it's it's just one of many moments in the film where it's it's just so so cleverly uh, structured. The family theme is quite Stanley and Irisy, talking about Martin Ritt again. That's it's that necessary kind of uh, um, optimism, uh, you know, which is, uh, yeah, as I say, necessary because optimism, otherwise... or maybe even 
illusion or that uh, well, you know, yes, this is it's, it's, or ide or idealism. Idealism. But then, better, then it's yes. a matter of what's lurking underneath. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, and yes, again, so. it gives the contrast. It gives the contrast that this is what we think life is, but now we're going to go explore something <laughs> a little darker. Things lined up in such a way that John was able to take on projects like that. Yeah, and and I think it's worth mentioning the pivotal love scene of the movie is perhaps uh, you know one of the key moments where John Williams' ability of making us questioning what we are seeing is perhaps the most explicit uh, sex scene in John's filmography. But but he scored the scene almost like like a horror. Really, there are even shades of Dracula creeping mm -hmm. in if you listen closely, mm -hmm. and it true. seems fitting because Caroline is seen as a sort of predator, <laughs> luring Rust Rusty in her dark web. So I mean, he literally plays the Dies Irae <laughs> in that moment. Yeah, yeah, just great observation. Absolutely. think that this this way of treating what we are seeing is also very evident i think in the in the scene of the barbara's confession i mean um, which for me is another masterclass in how the music has a real transformative power uh, into what we are seeing because it's it's really a, a piece that really speaks about 
something deep and 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 it's also a brilliant piece of of composition i mean it sounds like also modern piece of contemporary music by all means mm, yeah i i think courtroom dramas you know historically as as we all know a very they can be almost just nondescript but i mean here's here's one that certainly isn't and uh, it's you know, it's kind of a nice surprise to have it revisited. I mean, and this is what was so great, you know, about the the, the phrase we've used for so many years, uh, that Mike has used, uh, future-proofing. It's, and it's also going to introduce a new generation to this film. At the end of the day, many people, I'm sure, have never heard this before. So it's uh, it's it's wonderful to have it out there because that Varese CD has been out of print for a long time, long, long time. Well, and with that and Space Camp... Um our conversation today is far longer than the additional previously unreleased music on both releases put together. <laughs> it wasn't that, you know, it wasn't that much music really. Again, honestly, the, it, it was just sort of one to get done because it was the last of the one that the Saraban owned in perpetuity. We've done the others. So it was just one to sort of get checked off the list. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we found is that the original album had a lot of sweets, a lot of cues, put together to create tracks. So while it seems like it's a rather long CD, it's really just has all the cues broken apart so that you can get the chronology. And then we also included some of those um, album combos. It's just it's just worthwhile having just to say yes. that it's checked off the list and, and we've done it. There's not going to be, uh, you know, there's nothing unreleased still out there to be found on it. There's one interesting story about related to that score and Varese Saraband getting it. Um, you may recall that during the Boston Pops era, John was doing albums through Philips and then switched to Sony Classical. They signed a contract with Sony Classical. Mm-hmm. That got started, and Varese came along and got the made the deal to do Stanley and Iris, and then Presumed Innocent. And then the first release they did of the Cowboys was made at the time they did the deal for Presumed Innocent because it was another Warner Brothers score and they got it. It had never been out. All three were Varese Saraband perpetuity rights. 
But what happened was that was supposed to continue. And Sony contacted them and said, basically, we just made a deal with you. Contacted John Williams' people. We just, we have, we made a contract with you. Why are you not giving us your film scores too? And basically, <laughs> the answer was, we didn't know that you wanted them. We thought you just wanted Boston Pops. I says, no, no, we'll take it. What, what do you got next? And it was Home Alone. Wow. Right. So yes, yes. actually, Varez had that locked up and mm. it was taken away from them because of John's Sony contract, and it went to CBS Records. But Home Alone might have been a Varese Saraband perpetuity title if that had not, been, that had not happened, because it, it, they, it, they were ready to do it. Wow, and, and, and I think back in around the same time, Varese became Jerry Goldsmith's house, basically, mm-hmm. you know, for, for releasing soundtracks. From That's that right. moment onward, you know, early 90s was... So if Bob Townsend got both Jerry and John under the same roof would yeah. have been quite a coup. <laughs> he tried. I mean, I think he tried. And that's what happened was the Sony classical contract was in place and they said, uh, no, we want the film scores also. And with this nice little piece of trivia, uh, I'd love to wrap up our conversation today, my friends. It's been, again, a great pleasure, great fun, and great honor to have you, Mike, here with us discussing these new John Williams releases. And I'm very happy that we shed some light on other two, uh, maybe of the lesser-known titles of his catalog, but two works that are really worth exploring and worth revisiting thanks to these new uh, masterful releases that you contributed so much to. They are two really wonderful releases that I cannot recommend more to all John Williams fans. And I want to thank you, Mike, for being our guest once again. Maybe we <laughs> ran a little bit too long this time again, but it was a really great pleasure. So thank you so much for giving us some of your precious time. Well, thank you for hosting it. You know, I'm working on things for the end of the year right now. Maybe my comments were taken a little bit out of context or misinterpreted a bit last time. I have several in various stages that I'm working on, but I have no idea how many will actually make it out within this calendar year. Right now, I'm looking at two um, for the end of the year. And a lot of it is just because of how long the administrative aspect of it takes and how much catch-up I have to do, having spent eight months on Star Trek, um, a lot of catch-up. And then some of these are larger, more ambitious things, but it's like uh, there's at least three that there were the masterings done already. So it's a matter of doing all that. And also maybe you know not flooding them all out at once, but... It depends really on what they are. So there's two that I'm focused on right now for the end of this year, and I hope that they'll make it. We never, of course, have any guarantees, but we're trying. It's Once you see that it's May already, you start panicking. <laughs> True. Yes, yeah, so we're halfway through the year pretty much. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and also, I mean, in terms, even if we look at in terms of John Williams' releases, I mean, the John Williams' Here You're My album is coming out, and then early June, the new uh, John Williams and Sophie Mutter also is coming out. So there is plenty of stuff. Right. And then you have the Kennedy Cerner next month and he's writing Indiana Jones right now. And uh, so it's not like there's, and then off to Tanglewood. So it's not like there aren't things going on. Um, But for me, this has been a lot of catch up, Um, not just with his scores, but with everybody's because of the time spent on Star Trek and another very big soundtrack project that I'm working on that's not John Williams. So um, that has been quite a lot of the focus um, for this year so far. But again, on the John Williams front, there's two that we're focusing on right now to get them out this year. Fantastic. Look forward to that. Ultimate hurry up and wait. Absolutely. Mike, 
Tim. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks so much, both of you. Thank you, guys. Thank again, you. Uh, for going into the wee hours once again. And uh, always a pleasure and a lot of fun. Same here. Okay. Take care, you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.